This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. We've got a fun show for you guys today. Vic Tafer and Deshaun Reed are going to be joining us a little bit later to do our team visit about the Raiders. Ted Nguyen will be here to talk about the Dolphins defense, which I'm very excited about. Before we get to any of that, though, a football internet celebrity. Last week, he dropped the first piece he's written in a while. Ted actually had my perfect synopsis of it. It's like waking up and finding out that Banksy graffitied your garage door. That's the feel that it had. Mr. Smart Football himself, Chris Brown, how you doing, buddy? Doing well. Just glad to be here with the uh, the myth, the legend, Robert Mace. Oh, get out of here. We have known each other for a long time, to the point that I was looking up some of the pieces that you wrote for Grantland a long, long time ago that I edited. And we're talking eight years, which it does not feel like eight years, but that's how long it's been. Well, for some of it feels like eight years since I've written anything, but yeah, <laughs> we've gone back a long way. And, and for the, you know, the listeners don't know, you know, my early days, maybe not so early days of writing a lot of my pieces, they, they're only readable and, and digestible because Robert, you know, <laughs> amazing teaching me how to write a lead and, you know, actually make it presentable. That's a silly thing to say. The information was amazing. It continues to be. And I wanted to talk to you about several different things, but I want to start with the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. It was another uneven performance for them on Sunday night. We didn't talk about them much on Sunday's show with Nate because I knew you were going to be joining us later in the week. And I think you're uniquely positioned to talk about this because as someone who recognizes concepts well, can remember where you've seen them before, have a good sense for how they fit together. I wanted to talk to you just about the second act of this Ravens offense. And also, when I was going back and reading some of those Grantland pieces today, one of the ones that you wrote was about Greg Roman playing against the Ravens in the Super Bowl. And a lot of the stuff they did with the Niners back then and Colin Kaepernick, they're kind of trying to refresh for the modern era with Lamar Jackson. So there's a lot I want to unpack, but when you're watching the Ravens offense right now, what about it feels stale to you? Well, one thing that feels stale is, you know, some of the injuries on the offensive line, obviously. Well, of course we can get into that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but I do want to like set the table. I think, I think much of it is feeling a little stale. And I think um, there's an interesting story with Greg Roman where this is not the first time he's had a little bit of this, um, explosion and then every so ahead of the game and then people feel like they start to catch up and then all of a sudden you know he's goes from the hottest name and and, and sort of the coordinator world to um you know maybe not so not people not so interested he's I've certainly been let go several times and had a similar trajectory um, I do want to level set in the sense that you know we could be having this conversation in eight weeks and it's like wow the Ravens look great second half of the yeah. season got things organized you know this, there's a bit of a sky is falling they're you know they're 12th in scoring, um, the team is six and three. Like Lamar Jackson's pass rating, which is you know just you know I use just like a, a rule of thumb, it's like ninety eight, ninety nine. It's not so they haven't fallen off a cliff, right? So there are fixable things, and there's a lot of things that have accumulated. But um, you're right to go back that a lot of what Greg Roman was doing last year was literally, and I have those old Harbaugh Roman playbooks with Kaepernick, including you know the what they would you know put in his wristband and everything um a lot of the same stuff you know running power and inside zone from the pistol and then having extra blockers and 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 tight ends etc it was a lot of the same stuff so that's one reason why roman was brought in and sort of elevated because he was uniquely positioned there but 
um, you know, teams are a little more used to seeing it. And, and, and one of the knocks on Roman, and we can come back to other issues, there's lots of other things with the Ravens, but is that the passing game menu is limited. And mm-hmm. it, all, it has been for a number of years, even back when he was coordinating Andrew Luck at Stanford. Um, and, and when you watch them, they don't run a lot of different concepts. Now we can come into how much of that is Lamar Jackson as well. But, but you know, when you look at the Ravens, I know how defenses will look at them. Um, a lot of it, I, I think of it as like small A analytics, not the cool new stuff now, but literally old school scouting and tendencies, right? And, you know, when they get in certain formations, it's pretty sure there's going to be a run coming or even a gap run versus an inside zone or something like that or, a, you know, a read run. And then, you know, then they're going to go get an empty and they're going to throw one of like four pass concepts that they keep calling over and over again. So there is an element of just, um, we can get into the, the details of, of sort of what's cool and new and then what becomes stale quickly. But some of it is just, you know, old school self-scouting, um, knowing what your opponents are seeing and, and, and then just more used to seeing it. And I think that if you look at it, one of the things I've noticed, and if people have written about this really well, Mike Renner did a piece this week for PFF just about whether teams have figured out Lamar Jackson and some of the adjustments that defenses have made. And if you watch it right now, it feels like defenses – aren't as frantic before the snap against this team. They're not reacting to jet motion the way they would have last year. They're sticking with the calls they would originally have. We're going to talk about motion a little bit later, but I've had a couple conversations recently with guys. I talked to a couple defensive players, talked to Darius Butler about it, just how defenses should handle some of that motion stuff. And a lot of the answer is just have a call that doesn't change no matter what is going on in front of you. And because more defenses are playing man coverage against the Ravens because they feel like that's the best way to contain the passing game. They don't have to do much adjusting before the snap because that's what's called. That's what they're sticking with. So it just feels like defenses are more settled, less frantic, less chaotic before the snap, no matter what sort of chaotic stuff the Ravens are trying to put on them. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that goes to um, some of the the tendencies. And if you Mm -hmm. know of motion and then they don't really do anything out of that motion, or, you know, maybe once every three games, they actually hand it off on the jet sweep or throw the, you know, the swing screen or whatever it is. You don't need to have, you know, rotate your safeties around and then sort of, get, you know, change your whole defensive structure. And linebackers aren't even bumping over anymore. They're not even no. doing that as a reaction to it. No. And, and, and I mean, the one thing that, that the Ravens and Roma did is, is sort of clever, um, which does work well against man coverage. And we've seen a bunch of other teams adopt is where you motion a guy from outside the formation into the formation and then he becomes like a trapper or he blocks the backside of zone or one of those kind of things. And you can, if you do it right, you can get a two for one because there's a guy covering, carrying him in man coverage who runs across the formation and then he blocks somebody. And then the, you know, the man coverage guy kind of takes himself out of the play. Problem with that is that, that, and they've tried to do some play action off it a little tiny bit. Saw at least once to get the, the, the Colts. Um, it, that itself becomes a tendency. So then now that they, okay, they know not only what's coming, but what direction is coming. And, and, and I mean, and, you know, they're just used to seeing, seeing it really. Um, and, and, and as you said, the defensive coaches have, um, I wouldn't say simplified their calls, but gotten um, a little more flexible with them to, uh, so that they're not caught out of position. Well, what's interesting is that I think that the Ravens probably built a lot of this offense based on, just the idea that teams would be wary of playing man coverage against Lamar Jackson because of what he can do as a runner. And that's just typically the rule of thumb is that when you have a mobile quarterback, it's harder to play man because you're worried about him escaping and making plays with his legs. But now you see some of the ways the defense is reacting. 
They're playing with one or two spies. They're kind of vacating that deep safety in the middle of the field and having him play essentially to check Lamar Jackson. And the Ravens right now have built their personnel to the type of offense they had last year and not to beat a lot of man coverage. Mark Andrews is somebody who's very good against zone, but he's probably not going to create a lot of separation. They don't have a lot of in-space quick twitch receivers to do that kind of stuff. And I think the combination of teams figuring figuring them out a little bit schematically and the Ravens not having the sort of personnel to attack man coverage with their receiving core, it's all kind of coming together now to a place where Lamar Jackson's averaging five yards per attempt against man, according to PFF, which is the worst mark in the entire league. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that, that those are all good points. I think, um, you know, one of the things I want to hit on was the same point, but the personnel, they've kind of, you know, they, they went a little crazy on saying, you know, I want all these like young, fast receivers. Small. Yeah. Small. And then, and then now that's where they got a bunch of young, small, fast receivers, but they don't really have the guy that, you know, you're like, okay, when the chips are down, here's what I'm going to other than maybe Andrews, which as you said, he's, you know, he's a, he's a good player, but I mean, he's, he's kind of a, in a way he'd be very fair. He's a role player effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, that's why you've seen in a lot of critical situations, they're kind of going to Willie Sneed, which it's like when that's, yeah, your, that's your best, like, okay, when the chips are down, we got to get it to Willie Sneed. Um, no offense to Willie Sneed there, but um, uh, it, it's not a great situation. So they've kind of inadvertently, I think, hamstrung themselves um, w- with the way they've designed and set up the offense. And again, they're not doing a lot of stuff to engineer guys open. Um, I do think one of the things about with Lamar Jackson, I've followed him obviously for, for many years. Um, and, and I've always been a, a buyer of his passing ability within reason. Right. I mean, I've never like anyone, I think watching was like, we're not getting Patrick Mahomes here. Um, but he can definitely make throws. I mean, even like, you know, even some of the games were, were struggling um, with the Steelers, he hit some like tight window throws and there's some great throws in there. But the consistency, he, he still will just miss throws. And then it, he still seems to have issues driving the ball to the outside. Exactly. Yep. A lot of their whole offenses within the hash marks. So then that further compresses and condenses down what's going on. And I, and I also think, um, I mean, look, Lamar was, was dealing with some knee injuries earlier. I have no idea. But, um, again, with all these fast guys and Jackson – you think a lot of the, the offense be on the perimeter, but instead it's really been a hash mark, the hash mark offense where they're running inside with, you know, Ingram or Edwards or Dobbins, and then even Lamar Jackson inside, and then they're throwing inside and Andrews or these receivers. And it's, and it's really, they've, they've sort of lost a lot of the space, which is one of the issues with Roma's offense is, you know, he, he likes to sort of condense everything down and they just have not been able to stretch the defense out to create those kind of seams that they were able to last year. And one of those, I mean, one of the benefits of playing cover one is that it's a defense designed to take away the middle of the field because you have your robber guy, you have your center field safety. And if you're willing to play man out of lighter defensive personnel, which teams have been able to do against them this year in a way they weren't willing to do last year because they were afraid of getting gashed against the run, that's how you can understand you're taking away Lamar as a runner you're taking away the middle of the field. Now you're forcing him to place the ball outside the numbers to guys that probably aren't creating much separation. And these issues start to compound. And I think that's exactly what we've seen so far. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing is sort of taking a step back when you think about a, a, um, well, maybe, maybe make two points. So, um, 
one of the interesting things about football is everyone always likes to talk about how like things are cyclical and things come and go and everything. And, and I'm, and I'm kind of a, a partial believer in that. I, I think, you know, in parlance, though, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And what people have been saying for years, and there's lots of pieces written as everybody went more spread. Oh, you know, what's going to make a comeback is power football and it's going to be tight ends and power play and all that kind of thing. And the, we actually got it last year with the Ravens. It yeah. just didn't look like old power football where you're under center and you're just turning and, you know, Marty Schottenheimer or whoever. Um, it was power football. It was the spread masquerading as power football in a way. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, where, cause it was tight ends and the power play and gap plays and all that kind of stuff. Um, it just happened to be a quarterback and the shotgun and the pistol with an extra read. So they've got all the benefits there. But one of the challenges in the NFL of being a run first team um, is is the flip side of what happened last year. Last year, they were so efficient running the ball and explosive running the ball, but also just efficient, um, that they were always ahead of the chains. And so that's when I mean, they would have these games and it's just like, you know, six drives, six touchdowns, you know, seven drives, six touchdowns and a field goal. I mean, there's, it and never, you never get a third and seven in that entire sequence. Exactly. And so, whereas, you know, this year, there's a, it feels like every other drive, and, and I'm for sure Ravens fans feel this way, it's like first down run for two yards, second down run for two yards, third and six, get an empty, and then run of these, one of these same four, you know, pass concepts sort of in the middle. Um, and, and then doing that rinse, repeat. Um, and so when you're a run for yourself as the NFL, just, just sort of, it's not, again, not advances, it's just arithmetic, to get 10 yards in your averages, um, you, end up, you end up consistently playing behind the chains. And you've seen that with teams that are run-first offenses in the NFL, whether it was Chip Kelly or sort of the Shanahan style, wide zone, or some of the others, when it's, or McVay in his first couple of years, when it's rolling, it's like, you know, just rolling down the field. But then as soon as you get, even it, 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 it doesn't take much. You may a half yard worse on your yards per carry or your success rate goes down. Now suddenly you're just constantly behind the chains. If you look at what they've kind of run into when it comes to the barriers and how they've struggled to refresh this offense a little bit. When you think about some of the guys that have withstood the test of time and been able to create efficient offense consistently from year to year, whether it's Sean Payton, Josh McDaniels for a while, Andy Reid, what do you think are the markers of a coach that does a good job refreshing his ideas? Where do those ideas come from and what form do they typically take? So the first thing you do, I mean, other than having good players, Drew Brees. <laughs> that, that helps. <laughs> and, and Tom Brady or whatever, but, but uh, this is the obvious. But, um, it, it, you know, you focus on the things that, that always will work, right? And so and then you find out how to highlight those things. I mean, they're just things that, that just by definition will work. You know, certain kind of fakes, play action sort of always works. Um, engineering a two-on-one of some kind, whether it's in the run game or the pass game, always works. Um, and so finding those kind of time-tested concepts and building your offense around them, and then, and then what you do is you protect them. And those guys are really good at, at protecting those concepts. And so finding the answers to the little issues. So whether it's the defensive end that you can't block or, you know, the sort of some kind of roll coverage or whatever to take away the guy you want to throw it to. And, and so it's, it's knowing, getting the big ideas right and then having a lot of little answers. Like in high, high school, coaches always talk about um, for your offense or defense, you got to know how to fix your offense, your defense. It's one reason why you kind of run what you know, right? If you've been running the 3-4 the for 20 years, 
you might want to run the cool, you know, four, two, five, but maybe you should just run the three, four, because you know how to fix it when the chips are down. Yep. And, and those guys, by running the same offenses for years and years and knowing well, they know how to fix it to then protect the big key things. But I also think, you know, those guys are got to be adaptable. Um, and, and you've seen that certainly with Reed is, is, you know, sort of almost the paradigm case where, um, you know, coming out running sort of the version of the Mike Holmgren offense, which itself was a version of the Bill Walsh offense to what he's doing now. It's, you know, it's obviously on some level night and day. Another way he might just tell you it's another coat of paint on what, you know, what they were doing. Um, and so the thing I, I like about football ideas is that they literally come from everywhere. It's it, sometimes it's as simple as it's not even, you know, the, the head, the Bill Walsh head coach sitting in his office, just dreaming something up on the whiteboard. It's the assistant coach. Who's like, my guy can't get off a block. So why don't we put him here and put this guy here? And then suddenly like a new defense is invented um, or, you know, a new offensive scheme sort of comes up on a fluke or something like that. Um, and so those, those are fascinating, but then in the NFL, there's, it's so much about the protection of your individual play or your game plan. Like how do we solve this issue? We can't block, you know, Aaron Donald. So we're going to have to do these things. So we're going to wham him and trap him and do all those things or whatever it is. Um, I find that stuff really interesting, but when you look at it, 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 uh, it so, so uh, let me put it this way. The, the, the individual change from week to week and play to play the NFL is, is, is enormous, but then you sort of step back and it's, you still see the same concepts for 20, 25 years, the same even defensive principles. You might see more of them, sort of new paint, you know, coats of paint, but, but uh, you know, great ideas stand the test of time. And I guess the last thing I'll just say on that is that, you know, one of the things that's, that's, that's fascinating about these guys in football in general is you can't patent a good idea. So as soon as you have a good idea, yeah, um, you know, everybody else is running it. So often it comes down to how well can you integrate with what else you do and how well can you teach it. I think it's so interesting, and I'm going to use Matt Canada as kind of a jumping off point here because so he was hired by the Steelers this offseason, and I was talking to Randy Fickner, their offensive coordinator, earlier this year, and we were talking about the implementation of more jet motion into their running game, and I asked what he thought Canada brought to them when they hired him, and he said he majors in this, so when there's something that we don't know how to solve it or it's a problem inherent to that element of your offense, he's seen it before and he has an answer for that problem. And that's yeah. why it's not as easy as grafting. It's not as easy as seeing jet motion and saying, well, why don't we do more of that? Well, if you don't know where the holes in it are, it's difficult to understand how it fits within your scheme, which I think is important. And going back to Matt Canada and the Chiefs, I remember Brad Childress telling me a story once about watching a pit game when they were on the road Kansas City was just on a Saturday night. I think it was Pitt Syracuse or something like that. And watching some of the plays they were running in that pit game with Matt Canada as the offensive coordinator and thinking, oh, that shit is cool. Like, how do we do that? So it's just this amazing idea of you can either hire the guy or you can see something on TV that the guy does and say, well, could we do this? So it comes from all these different directions, but I think that's fascinating. Yeah, no, and that, that's what's fun about football. And, again, you can watch it on TV. You don't even have to call anybody. You could run it, you know, the next week, and, and there you go. Um, the flip side, though, is um, I always compare, you know, real football is not John Madden, right, where, where you could literally just swap playbooks week to week and then <laughs> we know all the plays and they know how to execute it subject to whatever the rating is and all that. Um, you know, I, I was listening to, a, to a, a clinic talk that, uh, you know, the head coach at Ohio State, Ryan Day, gave. And of course, he you know he's an NFL off, quarterback coach for a number of years, 
Um, and he said that I don't. He said I don't believe you can run any play in a game that your quarterback hasn't practiced a hundred times. Yeah. And so there is a tension of, and in the NFL, there's lots of plays people run that don't get practiced a hundred times. They put them in that week and they run them that week and run them well. But um, there, is, there is that uh, that sort of fine line between saying, okay, Kurt, we're going to put in all the cool stuff um, that I've ever seen anyone ever run. Uh, versus like, what can we actually do and execute well? So there's, speaking of motion, you and I have talked a little bit about this, how there seems to be a fascination with it right now. And I do believe, I wrote about two weeks ago, I do believe we're kind of in a revolutionary period for motion and its deployment in the NFL with how many teams are using more jet motion, more motion at the snap, so many moving pieces. And again, it's more difficult and more complex than just saying, well, why don't we do some of this? Because some smart teams are doing it. Because it can just be a bell and a whistle that doesn't have a lot of utility. The Ravens are doing it more than anyone. And they're currently, I want to say, well, Lamar Jackson is currently 27th in EPA per play among quarterbacks. So just doing it to do it, if it doesn't have a purpose, is not important. What do you think is overrated about the ways teams are using motion? And what do you think are actual utilities of it that you feel like more teams could tap into? Yeah, it's, um, you brought up Matt Canada earlier. And I remember, you know, he got hired at LSU um, as a, you know, big name offensive coordinator. And I think he didn't last in the season. Now, some of that was personality conflicts, but I remember watching their first game and they really kind of underperformed, uh, and they were they had plays where they would have six different shifts and motions pre-snap, and then to get like a two-yard gain, right? Um, and everybody's sort of like, are we, what, are we doing it just because it's so cool that we do more motion and shifts than anybody, or are we doing it to really get information? Somebody asked Bill Belichick the other day um, and, about sort of when to shift and motion. The premise of the question was one of these, like, isn't it so amazing? Shouldn't you always do it? And Belichick gave one of his typical kind of like, well, Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes you can do it. You don't learn anything. Sometimes it can be bad. If you go, if you line up in a formation and then you, you, you shift or motion and you think they're going to do something and then they do something that you didn't expect. And then you get a play that doesn't work because you got something you weren't expecting. So a lot of it, it's, um, uh, you know, can you use it to get information? So, okay. So if I line up in a formation and and then I shift into like a trips left formation through receivers left. I know that at the line, because it's happening fast, the defense can only make a couple calls to adjust to that. All right. Well, maybe that gives me some sort of advantage because then I can force them into one of a handful of adjustments. Um, and I then can call the play that I think will work against the thing. And a lot of time, a lot of time in NFL, you know, coaching staff is spent during the week saying, well, if we get this look, we're going to run this play and it's going to be a touchdown or explosive play. Um, and so if you can do it in a way that you actually can hopefully open your film, say engineer the look you want. Sometimes it's, it's to just get an angle. Like, you know, we talked about with Roman, one of the things that, that teams have copied this year is where they motion a guy in and, and the, the, you know, the tight end or H back coming across from is then able to kick somebody or, or, you know, dig somebody out of the, uh, of the run fit. Um, and it's just a great angle coming in from the other side and sort of at full speed. Um, you know, I saw one, one of, I think we'll talk about, you know, the Cardinals, you know, one of their touchdowns where they brought a guy and the receiver in motion is like a fake jet motion. And then it was his own read, but then the receiver added himself to the, the blocking scheme. So just a way to get extra numbers. So those things that they work well, but again, going back to Belichick's comment, if you're just doing it just to do it, 
you might actually be losing time for valuable information. I mean, you go back to, you know, the old Peyton Manning offense with Tom Moore and the Colts where you had Marvin Harrison or Reggie Wayne, and they kind of lined up in the same place every play because Peyton wanted to get out there and basically one of like three formations, look at the defense, and then call the perfect play based on wherever they lined up. And if they were shifting and motioning, he A, wouldn't have time, uh, and B, he might get a reaction he didn't expect. That's exactly what Aaron Rodgers brought up to me when I was asking him about it. He's like, Peyton Manning never motioned. It seemed to work just fine. And I think that's – there are some offenses that get something from him and some that don't. I think that the jet motion when it – and this is this oversimplification, but this is – you know I've talked about this with McVay and with with Rodgers. And I think that when it came in and became this really popular thing because the Rams were doing it so often a couple years ago, it was a way to get the ball on the perimeter quickly. Because that was the original jet sweep. I mean, when Bob Stitt was doing it 15 years ago, that's what they were trying to do. And then it was a way to displace people in the run game. You bump over gaps. You run yeah. back, back behind it. That's what Wisconsin was doing 10 years ago. Yeah. But now it feels like it's a way to get into your passing concepts in a way that you couldn't before. You're either changing three-by-one formations into two-by-twos and igniting checks on the defense by doing that. You're either trying to get guys into flood concepts in different ways, but unless again, it has a utility and you're not, it's not confusing you in the same way it's confusing the defense, then we're, you're running into a brick wall. So I think that's the thing. It's not just as simple as let's graft more motion out of the offense. If you don't know why it's serving the things you're actually, you were already trying to do, then I think things can get a little bit muddled. Yeah, and, and obviously there, there's a there's an element of the novelty of it. So when jet motion came in, NFL defenses, I mean, jet motion has been around for a hundred years. I mean, there was offense called like the fly offense has been around for like 40 years and people were doing all this kind of, you know, fly and jet motion. Like Steve Spurrier used to run it back in like, you know, the 90s of Florida. So, I mean, it's been around. Um, and so when it first came in and just weren't used to it and you see some hesitation, NFL hesitation sometimes is all, is all you need. A high school coach used to tell me, you know, one of the advantages of motion is motion causes emotion. Um, and sometimes that's yeah. enough. But as they've yeah. seen it and gotten used to it, then it um, obviously can, can lose utility. And, 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 and the jet motion is – the other advantage of that is there are only a handful of ways to respond, and especially if you see a defense that sort of starts with what they call two shell with, you know, two safeties back, even though – you know, most NFL teams or many NFL teams play it more like one high coverages, but they often start with two and then they rotate one or the other. So you can actually force the rotation because they'll spin the safety down. If they're doing that, then you get all kinds – A, you get the information because now you know they're always going to spin at the jet motion. If they don't, you're going to hand it off and the guy's going to be out on the perimeter with blockers. But then if they're doing that, then you're maybe you've got numbers to the other side with the run game, you know, which was a big McVay thing, sort of fake the, the early days fake the jet one way, safeties rotate to the jet motion, run the outside zone, and they would, what they call, push the, the number count. So, you know, the linebacker kind of, they would treat the, the, the outside linebacker as the mic and kind of push the whole count over to get it really wide um, and then have the jet motion going the other way. Um, and then if they try to adjust otherwise, then you've got past concepts and stuff off it. So, um, you know, it's it it, 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 it it can be a fun cat and mouse game, but um, – Again, the utility can be can be limited, and 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 as we've seen with the Ravens, if you don't have enough things off of it, it can become a tendency um, that then defenses know what's coming. So one of those other ways to give a wrinkle to your offense, gain information, is the way that teams use tempo, and that's what you wrote about last week. So the first time you wrote something in legitimately years 
was about these different sorts of tempos. What about the use of tempo? And you pointed to the Cardinals, a couple other teams. What about that drew you out of retirement? Like why that subject right now? Yeah, well, semi semi retirement from a hiatus. Well, I I I, I can't write about sort of real real current events as I can't keep up with you, but. Um, it, no, I, there was a little bit of something that's just been kicking around in my mind for a long time because I am fascinated with the communication in football and sort of little, the literal communication, like how you get information from the sideline to the field among the players. And I think it's something that most fans don't have really any visibility into. And, and often it's hard to articulate because the players are communicating enhanced all that. So they're, they're, um, they can't even really maybe articulate themselves like what we're doing. Like, oh yeah, just give them a signal and we're off to the races. Um, but I also thought part of the conversation right now is about shifts and motions. And, and, and it seemed like we had this burgeoning consensus that, you know, the, the way to the best offenses have the most motion. And, and, and again, that is one thing you've seen cyclical. Um, if you go back to the greatest show on turf Rams, that was like their big innovation was they were taking the Coriel offense, you know, Eric Coriel and all that. And then Mike March just had them do a bunch of shifts and motions every snap. And then they were getting guys wide open for Kurt Warner and, and, and all that. But I, I wanted to highlight um, some of the other ways teams use that time in between snaps because you're looking for any advantage you can get. And as a fan, it can be hard to notice because usually during that time, the announcers are talking, they're showing commercials, they're, they're promoing the, the, you know, the 60 minutes after the show or whatever it is. <laughs> Oh, there's a whole chess game going on there. Um, and, and, and one of the things about motion and shifts is that that itself takes time. So you, you only got so many tools that you can do, you know, during that period of time, obviously a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about up tempo and no huddle chip Kelly. Yeah. Chip Kelly and all that kind of stuff. And that's clearly like a tool, but I want to talk about the no huddle. It's not so much the no huddle and always going fast. It's, varying the tempos and using that itself to gain information and, and and the specific play that i was talking about with the cardinals but it was more of a jumping off point was um against the seahawks they did um the fake check with me where they got to the line they acted like they were going to call a snap then they, everybody looked to the sideline like they were going to get a um you know a play from from the sideline which is funny because as, as ted Wynn mentioned to me it's like i don't think the cardinals even do it that way they just did it for fake yeah I don't think they do either. That's what was the best part about it yeah. is it was this weird okie doke that didn't make any sense, but still worked. Yeah, it still worked. And it's not like the Seahawks were completely fooled by it. It just worked. Obviously it was, they got enough and DeAndre Hopkins and, and, and Kyler Murray were playing great. So um, they were going to make a play, but um, they did a fake, um, like they were getting the check from the sideline and then they quick snapped it and then Murray just launched it. And then of course, after the game, Kingsbury talked about how he stole it from Ohio state and I think a lot of people remember Alabama and Tua scoring against LSU on the same concept. Um, and I want to draw out that, like, well, why does that even work? And because um, when teams want to vary tempos of the no huddle, you can go regular speed no huddle where the quarterback gets the information and then he's telling the line and he's hand signaling the receivers. You can go lightning fast no huddle, which the Patriots famously do with their one word play calls. And I even posted some of the actual sheets that they use. Um, it's like play call like Terminator, which translates to you know some other like longer play call. And and then you do the freeze play, which you can, which is just really another way of doing a hard count where you go, you fake like you're gonna go fast, the defense has to get set, and then um, 
you know, you, you, you do the, you do the cadence, whatever it is, even if it's a silent cadence, you know, you clap or you raise your knee. Um, and then if they don't jump, um, you, you then get a, a, like the actual play call. So they'll actually get to the line with no play at all. And they'll only call the play after they get a look at the defense. So defenses have then reacted to that by changing their own play calls. You know, if they come in, they're going to look like they're going to blitz or play coverage. It, it sort of, then the offense gets to call the perfect play against, against whatever they just saw. So now defenses will uh, often change the, you know, they call it check when they check. So they would change their play. So then that's where this concept called peak comes in, where you, uh, if they try to do that in a team that does that, then you'll, uh, um, you'll call this concept where you can actually catch them in the middle of their own audible um, and catch them off guard. And, and the, the other example I used just, just very briefly was from Penn State, um, has used it a lot, especially when they had Saquon Barkley, and they did a, they would, you know, cleverly, because the, you know, in college, you know, they don't have the, the radio, so they, the defense would look to their sideline, so they'd call run plays the other way, so you get these funny plays where they'd be handing it off to Saquon Barkley, and he's already two yards that way, and the entire defense is <laughs> at their own sideline. So I just I, I I just want to draw out for for people like there's this whole weird world in that the seconds between plays that there's the whole cat and mouse game going on there. I think it's so fascinating the communication aspects of it because the one the single word play calls that the Patriots use in that NASCAR version of their offense, other teams have done that as a way to distill communication for younger players. Andy Reid has talked about this where he's taken these huge West Coast play names and distilled them down to one word because for kids that are 21 years old, sometimes it's easier to remember the one word than it is the 20 word play call. So it just kind of comes at it from two directions. One, it simplifies what you can call at the line. It gives you the chance to check into that play very quickly at the line if you want to, because now it's on your audible menu, which you wrote. And for some people, it's easier to get a grasp mentally on the one word play call. So it's just all these different things that are going on at the same time, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, but what's the downside? The downside is you can you communicate less information. If your call is just, you know, cheetah, like you have less flexibility and there's more memorization. You can, there's, there's an upper limit on how many one-word plays you can have. I mean, a team, no team's going to go into the game with 700 one-word play calls. <laughs> just too much memorization. Whereas the typical NFL play call, one reason they're so long it's one reason why even as much as I've talked about the no huddle over the years and all that, and I, and, I, and I think a conceptual way to think about things is makes more sense. I'm not quite on the like long play calls are, are inherently evil camp because they do communicate information. If I have a long John Gruden play call, I, you know, every guy basically is told what to do on the play. Once you get through that long thing, it's horrible for the quarterback, but if they can get through it, every guy knows what their route is, their assignment is. And so you have more flexibility as the coach to give you more tools and answers when you're in the game, but then you can't have everything be that long. So then, and you obviously can't go that fast because you huddle and you rattle all that off. So it's, um, that's what I think is interesting because everything is a trade-off. You know, if you want to have a long play call with lots of shifts and lots of motions, you know, you could do some wristband stuff, but um, you're not going to be able to go as fast, but if you want to go as fast, you're going to have a smaller menu there. And the Patriots are kind of the, you know, they're 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 somewhat the the, the unicorn and that they basically were like we're just going to do all of it we're going to have yeah. we're play calls we're going to have 140 different like individual two and three man route combinations that we can mix and match we're going to have every run concept because they've been doing it so long 
and the defense is the same way. I mean, I remember talking to Darius Butler about that. He was just telling me that in the middle of a game, you could just be like, remember that one thing we did against so-and-so six weeks ago? We're just doing that now. And it's just amazing the flexibility that it provides you. So you pointed out that play that the Cardinals ran. I want to talk about this very quickly before we get out of here because for somebody who's paid attention to air raid offenses in the way that you have for so many years, I'm sure that watching the Cliff Kyler experiment distilled through an NFL lens has been fascinating for you. So a year and a half in, what do you think has been the most notable, whether it's evolution, adjustment, distinctive element of that offense for you as it's been filtered through that NFL kind of way of thinking about it? Yeah, the, the interesting thing to me is, and I credit both both guys, and obviously it's a work in progress, is that, um, you know, how adaptable they're both, both trying to be and both are, um, you know, in, in sort of coming at it with a degree of humility. So um, I think for those most listeners know a little bit about Mike Leach. I mean, one of the things about Mike Leach, who's sort of one of the co-inventors of the Air Raid, is, um, you know, as one of his assistants, Dana Holgerson, has said, the best thing about Leach is he don't change shit. So <laughs> like six, eight, eight plays for a million years. And he's obviously had a lot of success over his career. Obviously also very much struggling in the SEC right now. Um, Cause teams are playing like drop eight and rush three. And they're, you know, they're, they're still trying to throw it 60 times a game. And it's the same concept. It's not really working. I think Cliff, although he's an air raid guy, um, one of his things for many years has been, um, you know, he'll, he'll try anything. He's very adaptable. He'll keep evolving. Um, and sometimes maybe, you know, too much. We talked about sort of seeing a play on TV and running it that weekend. Well, Cliff has talked extensively about like, oh yeah, I saw someone run a play and I put it in and whatever else. So I think to his credit, he's been very flexible. And I think the O-line coach there, uh, Kugler, um, in Arizona deserves a lot of credit. And Cliff Absolutely. With a lot of the individual technique development, but a lot of the run game schemes, I think Cliff kind of goes in with like a vision and they kind of hash it out and, Kugler's the guy who's been implementing this stuff for 20 years. So I think, um, you know, building out the run game has been fascinating. Obviously, when you look at the Cardinals offense, you know, they're, you know, I think they're number one in yards per game, but they're basically similar between a, a top five, top 10 offense. And it's, they were 10th in DVOA going into last week. And I'm sure yeah. they'll be right, right around there after that game. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's the thing that makes them good right now on offense is the, um, is the run game. And in particular, it's Kyler running. Um, that's like, they're very much an average offense sort of in every other way. And then Kyler running kind of takes them to the next level. So, um, you know, it's been interesting to see, see Cliff try to um, adapt the offense. Even earlier in the year, I saw him, he, he kind of fell into um, a little too much of an air raid, throwing a lot of screens and stuff like that. Against mm-hmm. China. And then you saw him really try to make an effort to push it downfield. So I think almost, um, one of the best things as a play caller and as a coach, he's, he's really quick to say, Oh, that's my fault. That's bad play call. I'll change whatever. I think, you know, at some point it's an interesting, almost as a PR thing, you're always taking the blame for everything. Is that, you know, going to blow back on him. But um, I give him a lot of credit for being adaptable and, and really experimenting to try to change. Cause they've, they've come a long way from one of, you know, four wides, every play to using more tight ends. Um, Kyler, it, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, I, don't, I don't know how to, you know, what, what accolade ha, hasn't been given to him. I do think that from a, he has to get more consistent throwing the ball. Some of that is that, and he's talked about it, that he's doing so much. I mean, he talked about it against the Cowboys. He like one hop to throw to Hopkins. He was like, I was just tired. Like, <laughs> like 
you run like 30 yards here and running there. And then you just, yeah. like, well, I, just, I was out of, you know, just out of breath and everything. So you don't think about that from the quarterback. So we don't think about that period. We just we never think about like the human elements of playing the quarterback position. Just the idea of like I'm scared that that like watching the Chargers Dolphins game. I was rewatching it today, and I was like, we just need to think about the fact that and I was talking to a GM about this a few weeks ago, and he was just telling me we don't think enough about how a quarterback's protection is in his mind at all times. And if he doesn't feel safe, he's going to make decisions that don't seem to align with what the play is giving him. And the human aspect of this, it's like, I'm tired. I'm afraid. It doesn't affect these guys in the same way it would affect us, but they're still human beings playing the position. Well, and there's like a fight or flight. I mean, these things have to be like, um, you know, instinctual kind of reactions, you know, reactive thinking um, and, and, I, you know, the internal clock and standing in there and all that. But if you've been getting hit and there's protection in your face, you're just naturally going to start, you know, you're not going to, it's not going to be like seven on seven. You're standing back there scanning the field. Um, but, but I, I mean, obviously Kyler's, the, the first thing that he did going into this year is that he just dramatically has reduced the negative plays. I think you saw yeah. in the first year, there were there were stuff where he was electric, and then it was stuff trying to do too much, and then taking a big fourteen yard loss and and you know killing the drive, and he's really cut out the majority of those. You see a couple things of play busts and whatnot. Um, you know, he, he, I think he was always underrated at how how much arm talent he had because he's so small and sort of a run around guy, but he's always had a ton of arm talent, as we saw from the hail mary, just incredible throw um, to make throws. There are still some that he misses, you know, missing high, missing low. The interception um, that he threw to Le- when he's trying to throw to Larry Fitzgerald, I mean, Larry was wide open and yeah. he threw off and behind him and everything. Um, in, in the games, he struggled earlier in the year and he didn't even struggle that bad, but there were some rough throws in there. Um, and so I think you'll see, I mean, they're, they're, they're an average passing offense, which is actually great. I need to keep in mind where the Cardinals were two years ago. Exactly. Average is a huge improvement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but it but it really is um, Kyler's running um, that that has taken them to, to where they are now. And the last point I'll make about it is that I, I, I do give Cliff and Kyler credit together, and that they use it strategically. I mean, they do not on first and ten just go paw away, you know, design runs for for Kyler. And he even talked about it. Somebody asked him about design. He's like, oh, we don't really have design runs. It's like we have scrambles and we have reads. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they use them. A lot. They're not running quarterback power like the Ravens are. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, you know, they've done a good job. And, and, and the last thing I'll say about Kyler, just as, as a random thought, um, I remember they played Oklahoma State and in, in Oklahoma played Oklahoma State in college. And uh, when Kyler was there and uh, Mike Gundy, the coach of Oklahoma State sort of threw out, he's very proud of himself for the stat. I don't have it exactly in front of me, but um, it was something like in the course of like 10 games, Kyler Murray had been tackled like seven times, <laughs> like 800 yards rushing. But, you know, he's always getting himself down, getting out of bounds, avoiding hits, but he'd only been tackled like seven times. And I think that is, um, you know, is, is a unique feature that he, the guy just doesn't really take many hits. So the Cardinals are 12th in offensive DVOA, 13th in passing DVOA. So right in line with what we were saying. So, all right, Chris, I could do this for six hours, but we got to talk to everybody else. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know that you're very busy. Always good to talk to you, and I'm hopefully we can do this down the road again. Yeah, absolutely. Love it, and I love listening. So glad to be on. All right, it's time for this week's team visit, and I wanted to do a deep dive on the Las Vegas Raiders. I never get that right, so I have to concentrate here. 
a team that had a big winning on Sunday against the Broncos and is now six and three, sitting right in the thick of the wild card hunt. And I wanted to have on to Sean Reed and Vic Tafer, the two guys who cover the Raiders for us. Gentlemen, really appreciate you guys coming on to do this. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. So, Vic, you've covered the team for you know, about a decade now. You've seen a lot of stuff go down. And obviously, the John Gruden era when it began, I don't know if controversial is the right way, but it created a stir. Trading Khalil Mack, just a lot of fervor early in that tenure and early in this latest go-around for Gruden. Now that we're like two and a half years into the John Gruden experience the second time around, where would you say the fan base, the franchise, everyone kind of sits with John Gruden and where this team is headed? Well, I think, I mean, obviously when he came in, he wouldn't say this, but they, they're always pointing towards Vegas as far as when their team would be able to really compete and make a run for it. They had young players last couple of years, a lot of good draft picks, made some signings this offseason. So I think um, I think the fan base is okay. I think obviously it sucks because you can't go to games, obviously, because that's where we're at, you know, right now, the pandemic. So there's not the same feeling in Vegas as there would be if there were fans in the games. There's some buzz. I think teams, um, fans are happy they're winning. I think Oakland fans and Bay Area fans are still on board. I think all the games this year are on TV in the Bay Area, except for one, I believe. One won't be on this year. But so you can still watch the games on TV live. And still, um, it's the same experience you have if you were in Vegas, really. So I think the fan base is pretty excited about John Gruden and about uh, Derek Carr and where the team is right now. So, Vic, it's interesting to me because in a lot of ways, this team feels a little bit like it did last year in the sense that the offense is good. The offense is productive. It's efficient. I think they're seventh in passing DVOA right now. The defense is lagging a little bit behind. If you were trying to characterize why I should feel differently at the 10-game mark about this Raiders team compared to what I would have felt about last year's Raiders team, why should I be seeing them in a different light? I probably would say because your offense is even better than it was last year. I think Derek Carr is better. Uh, Josh Jacobs is better. Henry Ruggs gives you a little extra dimension that he had, didn't have last year. Uh, Darren Waller's become you know, even better top five tight end than he was last year. So to me, the defense still has to make some strides. I mean, last week was a, a nice win, but I don't know if that was Drew Locke or if that was really them because, uh, you know, four receptions and a, and a fumble. But to me, the pass rush is not quite there yet, so I'm not sure you really can say they're a serious contender at this point. We'll see, I'm sure, more this weekend, I guess, the Chiefs. But So I, I can't say there are a lot defensively you should be excited about. I think, um, I guess, Dan Marinette's a nice piece. I think he could be a guy, and the foundation of defense could be him, uh, Abram, and Trayvon Mullen, which is a nice secondary for years to come. So if you're going to be excited defensively, I think those three guys are a reason why. So, Deshaun, I think that if you look back at the spring, and the conversation that was happening around Derek Carr. I mean, this was a team that some people were throwing out, will they sign a guy like Cam Newton? They brought in Marcus Mariota on a sizable contract, and I don't think you do that if you're completely sold on Carr as your long-term guy. So the conversation and just the discourse about him coming into the season and what he's been so far, how do you think it's changed, and what do you think he's shown people that they might have wanted to see from him coming into what was a pretty important year? Yeah, I think Carr was probably the most polarizing player coming into the season. I think as an outsider, you know, this is my first year covering the team. Just from afar, I couldn't tell why there was such a negative narrative surrounding his mm-hmm. name. You know, just look at his numbers. You know, like, oh, he seems like he's pretty good, you know, especially, you know, <laughs> there's some awful quarterbacks in the leagues. It's like, I don't know why you guys hate him so much. And uh, when you look a little bit closer and, you know, he has that, that kind of reputation of being a check down guy and kind of you know, hesitant to push the ball down the field. Um, and, and like you said, when they signed Mariota this offseason to that big, you know, seven and a half million dollar contract guaranteed, there were even some questions about, you know, can Mariota take the starting job at some point? I, I feel like every radio spot I did this offseason, they were asking me over-unders <laughs> on how many games Mariota would play. And 
Um, I think very quickly on throughout training camp, we saw that, <laughs> that was not going to happen with Mariota with how he was looking before he was placed on the injured reserve. Um, he just wasn't, it, it, it was clear this was Carr's job and it was going to be his team moving forward. Um, and he sort of changed the narrative on the season. I mean, he's averaging the highest yards per attempt of his career so far, I believe. And uh, he's, he's not afraid to take shots. And it's kind of interesting that even though he's being more aggressive and pushing the ball down the field, he's only thrown two interceptions so far. So he's not making many mistakes, which is something that he has had a reputation of doing his entire career is being pretty safe with it, but he's also, you know, being aggressive and pushing the ball down the field now. And so I think it's pretty consensus that the, the fan base is on board with him as a quarterback. I don't think there's, you, you know, you're going to have a, a group that doesn't like him and they're thinking forward, you know, maybe in the offseason we're going to go get Aaron Rodgers or whoever it may be. But, I mean, the way he's played so far this season, it's kind of hard to critique him now. I mean, you look at some of the numbers. I mean, he's fifth in the kind of compilation completion percentage over expectation EPA per play that Ben Baldwin does. I mean, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL by some advanced metrics. You talk about the, the deep ball stuff. I was looking at it today, and it's just different enough than it was last year. Like just enough of an uptick. So last year, he was 30th of 32 guys in air yards per attempt. It was 6.54. This year, it's, six, it's 7.69, which is 21st. He's not slinging it down the field like Jameis Winston, but it's enough where it's like, okay. And then the big number to me, the biggest difference is that last year he had 568 deep yards, yards on 20-plus air yard throws on, in the entire season. Through nine games this year, he has 536. I mean, that's just a monstrous difference. Would you say that's the biggest change with this offense from, the, from last year to this year, Vic, is just the amount of production they're getting down the field on some of those throws? Yeah, I also probably would say also that his ability to make plays like on a run or outside the pocket and look, look for, yep. for plays deep, like after plays break down, he's definitely a good job of reacting and kind of making second reads and the third reads and getting guys open downfield. So I think the hat, the Gruden and the staff are probably happiest about his ability with his feet this year, scrambling, buying time, making plays, where in the past he might give up a little too early, he might not look for that second or third read. So I think for him it's all about confidence. He has confidence this year in his own line and in his receivers. I think he definitely should kind of see the old uh, 2016 flashes for, from Derek Carr this year. It's interesting to me because when you watch them, the pieces fit together. I mean, you watch some of the things that they're doing. It just seems like they're ticking all the boxes. I know the offensive line has been hurt this year, but if you look at the receiving core, even if Ruggs' production hasn't been great, you can see what he does. I'm thinking of the completion to Aguilar at the beginning of the Bucks game where Ruggs just clears out and Aguilar comes behind it on that deep throw down the middle. That's just stuff that is created by his speed. The way they use Waller is kind of that backside X receiver the same way the Chiefs use Kelsey. The completion of Renfro on the first pass against the Broncos this week when he's just going back into the middle on that little reverse whip route. All these pieces fit together. So Deshaun, if you're thinking about just this offensive personnel, not just for the second half of this year, but even into next year, do you feel like this is the core overall that they really envisioned when they tried to put these pieces around Derek Carr? Or do you think there are a couple of things where like, man, maybe if we need this one more piece? Yeah, I think the only piece that's kind of up in the air is his ex receiver with Brian Edwards. You know, they, they drafted mm-hmm. him this year and he had a lot of hype and training camp going into the season, but he got hurt early on. He's, he had been out since week three and kind of in that stretch, Nelson Aguilar has kind of had a revelation been becomes yeah. this major deep target for him. I don't know if he's going to be coming back next season. You know, he's on a one year deal. Uh, Tyrell Williams, he was placed on IR before the season, and, and it looks like he probably won't be back. They're still up in there. They, they may end up deciding to. Uh, but, you know, 
throughout the second half of the season and moving forward, we have to see if, if Brian Edwards can become that start next receiver opposite of Henry Ruggs, or if they're going to have to go out and get somebody else. I think that's the only piece. Cause I mean, you look in the backfield, obviously Josh Jacobs, he's a young back looking like a top 10, maybe arguably top five back in the league right now. As you said, Darren Wall is probably a top three tight end. Uh, Henry Ruggs, I know he hasn't had the, the rookie season that some of the other re- receivers out there have, but I, I think they're still high on him and thinking long-term he can become that guy at that Z spot for him. And, and obviously Renfro is, he's not, he doesn't have as many targets as he did last year, just naturally with them having more weapons, but I think he's averaging more yards for reception and, and uh, catching a higher percentage of the balls going his way. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess we have to see what happens with, with Carr. Like, do they try to make a move for somebody else in an X receiver spot? But when you look collectively, um, like I said, including the offensive line when it's healthy, it seems like they have all the pieces on offense. There's really not much that moving forward the next two or three years is you look at and you're like, oh, we need to change that or, or improve in a drastic way. It's interesting to me because guys like Car- or guys like Aguilar, when guys come from an offense where they weren't playing very well and then they get to a new spot and they thrive, it says a lot about that new spot and a lot about the coaching staff's ability to put guys in positions to succeed. I think Waller, in a way, even though he's really talented, it's a similar conversation. It's like, oh, this guy's really good in this really nice situation. So I think this is an con- offense conducive to production. The one other spot that I was quite curious about, Jacobs has 23 catches this year, I think. I think he had 20 last year in 13 games. He got 23 and 9. Do you feel like they are looking to maybe add a pass catching back somewhere down the road? Because their efficiency on some of those running back throws hasn't been as high as they're probably looking for when you combine the completions to Richard and to Jacobs into one guy. Yeah, I think that they were looking for internal growth from from Jacobs. I think coming into the season, he said he was going to catch what sixty passes, Vic, something yeah. like that. And so I think they he might be on his way. Yeah, they think he might have the potential to do it himself. Obviously, you know, you can always use help in that area. And and Richard, he hasn't had as good of a season, but that's partly because of the emergence of of Booker in the backfield. Kind of has that power back. He's taken some snaps from Richard who recently got hurt, but I don't know necessarily if they're going to go out and get a specialist guy. You know, I think they think Jacobs can can do both of those. Interesting. Vic, I, the part of the team I think has been the personnel-wise that's been the most impressive this year, the fact that they've been able to sustain this level of offensive success with the amount of injuries and just the amount of shuffling they've had to deal with up front is kind of remarkable. I mean, Brown is out for the second time on the COVID list now. Colt Miller has missed significant time. You have Denzel Good bouncing around to a bunch of different spots. What's just the thought about the long-term health of that line, and what do you think the five will look like if this team does happen to get toward the playoffs and is ready for the stretch run? Well, I think Colt Miller is probably back this week is my guess, so that's the left tackle spot is, is okay. I'm not sure Trent Brown's back anytime soon, so the question would be, you could keep going with Sam Young at a right tackle, or do you move Brandon Parker from the left side to the right side? Brandon Parker, to me, has been uh, one of the bigger storylines of the year. I've been shocked. I've pretty much uh, been ripping the guy to shreds for the last couple of years. I thought he was you terrible. You wouldn't be the first guy to write him off. I think he was out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people coming into this year. I mean, it was so bad they got rid of David Sharp. Like, you can't get rid of David Sharp. He's a lot better than Brandon <laughs> Parker. People thought, I, people thought I was nuts. But um, – I'll give Tom Cable a lot of credit. Uh, Parker's done a really nice job this year. Sam Young's done a good job. So uh, my guess is you, you move Parker maybe to the right side for Trent and then or if uh, – I'm not sure about incognito status, but at some point you could also move Denzel Good back to tackle also. So they have real nice depth. They have pieces that move around. And you got to say Tom Cable's done a great job this year. It's really unbelievable to me. I was shot. I mean, I never would have guessed maybe 2-0 and with, uh, with Sam Young and Brandon Parker as your two tackles. That To me, that's an amazing, amazing stat. 
I mean, talk about Derek Carr revitalizing his image. What Tom Cable has been able to do after the shit he took consistently in Seattle is pretty crazy. And I think, it, again, it speaks to just how it's all kind of working in concert. And it really talks, points to the fact that Derek Carr makes his line better in the same way that a lot of people used to say the line made Derek Carr look good. His ability to process, the way he gets rid of the ball quickly, his pocket movement is underrated. All of that stuff just feels like it's really working well together. You can't say the same thing about the defense. So, Tashad, I'm, I just, I want you, you're a young guy. You know, you, you're, the world hasn't totally beaten you down yet. I hope young not. Guy. <laughs> I'm just, you'll see where I'm going with this. Right. I, I, hope, I hope you're a little bit more optimistic than some of the rest of us. If you are building a path forward for me, if you are building the optimistic case for the defensive side of the ball, how do you think the calculus comes together where this can be? a group that doesn't torpedo the offense, where if they sneak into the playoffs, they can give some of these contenders a decently hard time. Yeah, I think it really depends on that, that linebacker core start to live up to the money that they paid him. I think Nick Kwiatkowski, he started to come around the last couple of weeks. My guy. As more of a run stopper and even had a nice one-headed interception. He had been, they have been taking him off the field and pass, passing situations, but you know, he, he seems like he's making a little bit more progress in that area. Uh, but Corey Littleton has been pretty rough this season. I mean, he's missing almost a quarter of his tackle attempts, um, and I, and he hasn't been good in coverage either. And that's you know what his hallmark that's was. His specialty, Rams. yeah, right. And and you know he's the highest played player on the defense right now. And uh, you know that, that for the last decade, I mean, Vic can speak to it better now. But the, the Raiders haven't had good linebacker play in, in forever, and this was supposed to be finally the year that they had it. So so maybe you know with Littleton, obviously he's on the reserve COVID nineteen list. If he's able to return it and get back into things and, and play at a higher level. Um, I think both in the run and passing game, I think that's kind of the key to this defense, not being a liability moving forward. I think the secondary, I mean, it's so young with, with Trayvon yeah. Mullen and Damon Arnett and Jonathan Abram kind of being a torpedo and taking a bunch of risks. I don't know if they're going to be super reliable, you know, especially in the playoffs against some of the, the better quarterbacks in the league, especially with the, the pass rush not being that great. Um, I don't, I don't think that changes a lot this season. Max Crosby's having another good year, but Malik Collins is another free agent acquisition that they had coming in that, you know, that three technique, they were saying he was a key to the defense and expecting him to cause a lot of pressure from the interior. And it just hasn't happened. He's been a non-factor in in most of these games have been played so far. So it really comes down to the playoffs. Can those free agent acquisitions throw Carl Nassib in there at defensive end? Can those guys step up and play up to the money that they were paid this offseason? Because I, you know, I don't think it's, you you can't really expect the guys that are the rookies or, or sophomore players to, to carry you home, you know, in that kind of situation. Vic, they have 11 sacks on the year. It's down at the bottom of the league. I think pressure rate, they're about in the middle. I mean, it's not great, but it's not terrible in the number of pressures they put up, the number of hurries. But they have the second lowest blitz rate in the league. They just don't bring a lot of heat. And when you're not getting after the quarterback and you're not trying to bring extra bodies, have you asked about that? Is Do they have a sort of methodology about why they don't want to be bringing more pressure looks, even though they're having trouble getting after the quarterback? I think the answer is that when they have brought the blitzes, they haven't gotten home. So when you blitz and guys want to get home, that's a big problem. So their their success rate has not been great. I think one thing we saw last week with uh, Nicholas Morrow in for Littleton was he does a nice job on blitzes. He got home twice at a sack, and he also uh, almost he caused an interception to Nassib late with his pressure. So that could be a nice piece for him going forward. So I'm not sure if he was going to replace Littleton at some point or what happens when when Corey gets back, but that's one piece. They're also bringing Abram more pressure now. Abram's blitzing a little more often than he used to. So I just don't know if the guys are really um, – they have those guys in, in to yeah. make those kind of play. That's kind of the problem. If, if you can't get there when you blitz, 
and you really make things worse for yourself than, than you had originally. So I, I still think they're probably a year away personnel-wise. I think they've made some mistakes this offseason. I think you have to add a big-time pass rusher in the offseason. That way, I think Furrell's been fine. He's, he's a solid player. He's more of a run guy and a pass guy, but he can move inside and third, third down. So ideally next year, you have a guy who can be a big-time pass rusher and he can move Furrell inside on third downs. That'll help a lot, I think, as far as this defense going forward. When you say the mistakes this offseason, you just think they pumped too much posi- too much money into a non-premium position at linebacker and didn't have enough concern about the front? Is that what you say? That, is that how you would characterize the mistake? Yeah, the guys that uh, Deshaun rolled off, like uh, Littleton, like $22 million yeah. guaranteed, not been an impact guy. Kwiatkowski's been solid at best. Malik Collins. I mean, John Gruden every day at training camp, so these guys the key of the defense. I think every, everyone else in the staff was like, hey, man, shut up. You know, There's too much pressure on the guy. <laughs> so and we realized that it was way too, too much hype. So uh, Carl Naps has been fine, I guess, of late, but not really. Again, a guy you would pay $7.5 million to. So to me, those are four pretty big misses. Uh, Marcus Joyner last year. Again, pretty big contract, not a lot of, uh, a lot of meat on the, on the plate for that one either. So I just think that they've missed a lot in free agency the last two years. So that's probably one of the reasons why they're not going to get as far as they could uh, this year. It feels like Rod Marinelli has just been in Gruden's ear for 20 years telling him, telling him how important that three technique is. He's brainwashed John over decades of football conversations that that's the guy. It's the number one guy. That probably was in 2002 when everyone was playing cover two every play and never blitzing, but it feels like it's not quite as important these days. Didn't seem like the Cowboys mire too much. Cowboys didn't put up a big fight from the clowns either. That's, oh, to me, that's kind of a warning <laughs> shot. Like, go, oh, you want, go ahead. You can have him. Like, oh, that's not a great sign. So um but you know i mean we'll see i mean robert nelly obviously he's been around the league for a long time so you see some signs of improvement the last couple of weeks arden key's making plays all of a sudden so if robert nelly can get arden key to be you know a, a good player then that'd be a big feather in his cap it's interesting just because i mean you look at the personnel and the steps that they can take and this is a team that's handed out a bunch of huge contracts i mean the tyra williams contract the marcus joiner contract the Trent brown contract but they can get out from under those next year I mean, they yeah. can move on from Joyner and Williams, I think, for nothing. And and, and, and Mariota also. Mariota is another and guy. And Mariota, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that's $35 million in cap space right there. And the for the most part, if you look at this offense, it's a top 10 unit. This group can come back completely intact next year outside of Aguilar without having to spend a dime. And then you have $20 million to spend on the defensive side. So, Deshaun, if you're looking at just – where this team goes from here, the way they want to shape this roster, hypothetically, let's say they don't win the Super Bowl this year. I don't think that's a crazy <laughs> thing to say, even for the most ardent of Raiders fans. <laughs> Do you think that it's just pass rusher, pass rusher, pass rusher, or just in terms of the overall way they want to build that defense and kind of look to 2021 as this year they can really go after it? Are there kind of quieter pieces that you think are also going to be a part of that equation? Yeah, I think outside of pass rusher, the, the primary one would be free safety. Uh, you know, they, they came into the season, but they had a weird situation where they added Demarius Randall this offseason. That's right. They paid paid him guarantee money and then cut him for, for nothing. And <laughs> uh, came into the season with Eric Harris back there, and he, he struggled. Uh, Jeff, Jeff he, he stepped up. He had two picks against the Broncos. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know if that's your long-term answer at free safety next day. I'm going to tell you right now that it's not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, when you have Abram playing as wild as he does, and he's, he's, he's I wouldn't say he's a liability in coverage, but he, he makes a lot of mistakes back there. You, you need a, a free safety that, that can legitimately cover and make an impact. It's not the most important position on the defense, but I think in addition to pass rusher, that's also an area where they look to improve, whether that's free agency or the draft, we'll have to see. Um, and then if you do cut, let's say they do cut LaMarcus Jordan, obviously you need to go get somebody at that, at that nickel spot. 
Uh, if it, it would, that sort of depends on they, they drafted Amik Robertson um, this this in April in the fourth round, and they're, they're high on him. I don't know if he's going to be ready in his second year to step into that starting role. He may be. They may decide to, to roll out with him. But I would say if you want me to put it in order, I would say pass rusher, free safety, and then nickel. It feels like, you know, you talk about guys like Meek Robertson or some of the signings they've made. And where on the offensive side of the ball, it seems like everybody that comes in is outperforming expectations. On defense, whether it's free agents or guys that bring it in through the draft, it's the opposite. Guys aren't living up to their potential. Guys aren't being developed. Vic, when you're thinking about just the defensive staff in general, does it feel like Gruden is married to Paul Gunther moving forward here? Or if we don't get better results on the second half of the year with some of these younger guys, do you think that's an area where they could maybe look to do a little tweaking as they say, all right, the offense is ready. We need the defense to kind of pick up the slack here. We need it right now. There is a little bit of pressure on Gunther, but not, I wouldn't say a lot. I think he's probably more secure than Raider fans think he is. I think okay. um, one of the things he has going for him is that it brought in Marinelli, even though Buck, Brent Buckner was, was good last year. And so um, it's his third D-line coach in three years for Gunther. So that's not a big deal, but it's something. It's, it's a weird it's a tweet sure. that I'm sure he really didn't want, probably. I think I think Gruden's going to look at the rest of this year as far as the young guys improving. Like if you, like we mentioned Arden Key, if you make some strides. And, and Furlow's gotten better than he was last year, so that's something. And I think, again, the linebackers, how are they going to fit? I mean, I'm not sure what Gunther has to do to get more out of Littleton. That will be a big – for me, that's a huge storyline the rest of the year if, if they go with Littleton – or they go with Nicholas Morrow, who actually made a lot of plays on Sunday. I think the Raider fans who've always been last year and a half and wanting Gunther fired. There's like Twitter accounts, fire Paul Gunther. <laughs> there always are. I think last week's a big, like, uh, wait a minute, because you know, Morrow stepped in and made a lot of plays. You can't really say that the system is at fault if the guy who replaces Littleton comes in and make, makes plays. So I think that's something that, for me, at least raised my eyebrows a little bit. All right, Deshaun, before we get out of here, Again, I want you to play the optimist. If we're building a case for this Raiders team, giving a team like the Chiefs or the Raider or the Ravens, or just one of those teams, the Ravens don't mind even being in that conversation anymore. But let's say it's the Chiefs again, and they already beat them once this year. If you're kind of building a formula and building a path for this Raiders team to make noise in the playoffs, what does that version of this Raiders team look like? I think it's kind of the, the version that we've been seeing the last few weeks, you know, the passing game really hasn't been going, you know, it's made some, some big plays here and there, but it's been run first. I think they've averaged over 190 rushing yards per game the last three games. Um, and, and in the playoffs, if, you know, obviously weather and all those things can play a factor, but if you're running the ball like that and you can just dominate time of possession, like I think in the third quarter against the Broncos, the Broncos may have had it for like 90 seconds or something like that. <laughs> Hard to score that way. Right. And so if, even if your defense is awful or just like substandard or whatever word you want to attach to it, um, you know, it's kind of hard for the opposing team to score points if they never get the ball. Right. And so I think that's really their formula for trying to upset somebody. Uh, you know, they, they won a version of a shootout with the Chiefs earlier this season. I don't know if they're winning the shootout against the Chiefs in the playoffs or the Ravens or whatever other, you know, AFC contender you may throw in there. Um, and so I, I think really their only formula to, to upset somebody is, you know, if you have Josh Jacobs going, Devontae Booker going, um, and you're sort of keeping your defense off the field as much as you're keeping the opposing offense off the field. I will say, I'm not sure I owe Derek Carr an apology yet, but the Raiders are much more fun on offense than I anticipated <laughs> them being. And I am excited to watch them down the stretch here. Gentlemen, sincerely appreciate the time. Really good to catch up with both of you. And uh, we'll talk to you down the road sometime. All right. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Very excited now to welcome Ted Wynn to the show for Ted's Film School. 
Ted, we're going to be talking today about the defense that is kind of taking the league by storm a little bit. They are currently eighth in passing DVOA. They are third in dropback EPA behind the Rams and the Steelers. And that is the Miami Dolphins. So Keenan Allen came out after the shellacking that the Dolphins put on the Chargers offense last week, just derailing the Justin Herbert hype train, essentially saying that the Chargers were extremely confused and the Chargers were running the ball in order to avoid catastrophic plays. That's how you know you are living rent-free in an offense's head is when they're running the ball because they're afraid to throw it. And that's the point the Dolphins have reached. So I want to talk about a bunch of different stuff as it relates to this defense. But first and foremost... When you watch this team, what are they doing that's unique? What are they doing that's different than what other NFL teams are trying to do right now? I, I don't know if what they're doing is too much different than what the, the Ravens are doing as far as just playing a lot of cover zero and blitzing the heck out of teams. Uh, but I know what they're doing just from studying them the last few days is they have a very interesting way of layering their pressure packages. Uh, so, I mean, if you were to compare it to an offense, what an offense does, it's almost like what the Rams do. They're very systematic and everything looks the same in the beginning until mm-hmm. it isn't. They're going to stack the line full of guys, uh, you know, and they're going to dictate uh, teams how teams protect and how teams throw hots. And they have an idea of where you want to throw your hots. They're going to drop into those um, areas where you want to throw your hots and then you know, there are times when they just drop out and you're keeping in seven to protect and you only have three guys on a route. Uh, so, you know, yeah, it's just, you know, they, they, they do all the things that offenses don't want to see. So how do you identify that area where you know the hot is going? Because that seems, I mean, it's easier said than done, I assume. I think every team would probably want to do that if you can if you can kind of combine your pressure looks with being able to get to where a hot was going to be. So what have they done to kind of implement that element into their defense one of the dolphins most frequently used pressure packages is when they have two their two defensive tackles and one techniques and then they have two linebackers mugged up on the b gap and the d tackle and linebacker on each side are reading the side that the offensive line slides to so if the offensive line slides right then the defensive tackle and linebacker on that side are going to drop into coverage and the linebacker d tackle on the other side are going to blitz and when they drop back, they know that offenses want to replace the blitz with the hot route. So they're going to drop back into the area where the defensive tackle and linebacker are rushing from in hopes to um, that they're going to drop right where the hot route is. And it just seems like to do this, you need extremely smart players. And I think you probably need a defensive staff that's going to communicate this stuff well to those players. And I think that you're seeing that because... My One of my first reactions when I watch this team and you see all of the cover zero blitzes and you see all of these different packages, you see the kind of amoeba, everyone's standing up around the line on third down mm-hmm. looks where they look genuinely menacing. I tweeted a link to the play against the Chargers. It's scary. If you're playing quarterback against that, you would not want to see it. So why wouldn't more teams try to do this stuff? Do you think it's just a little bit too complicated? You're trying to ask a little bit too much. You're putting a little bit too much on these guys' plates mentally, or is it even more than that? Yeah, I think there is a big risk factor involved in in running the, as much pressure as the Dolphins do, and it takes a total commitment. Like you know, on day one for a bunch of installs for other defensive coordinators, I'm sure they're installing like cover two, cover three, the basic stuff. But the Dolphins are probably installing their cover zero pressure look 
right yeah. right in the beginning because they know this is what they want to do and they're going to commit to it and then they're going to build off of it. So it it takes commitment, it takes comfortability in the risk factor, you know, in, in those blitzes. Uh, but, you know, learning to live with it and knowing that you're going to have big plays. You might give up big plays, but you're going to make big plays on defense yourself. And it feels like beyond just the guys who know where they're supposed to be and the aggressive approach that they're taking, they have the personnel to do this. They have a front of guys that, not dissimilar to what the Patriots have looked like for years, not a lot of 250-pound pure edge rushers. You have bigger guys, whether it's Shaq Lawson, Agba, dudes that can replace, can hold up against the run, can work with stunts. And then on the back end, you have true man-to-man corners. So when you watch guys like Byron Jones, guys like Xavier Howard, what they've been able to do, how do they service what the Dolphins want to do schematically? Yeah, they, you know, they they're taking what the Patriots did where they're investing a lot of their money in their secondary. I think the Dolphins are paying their secondary like, you know, they're it's taking like a 40 million dollar cap hit or something like that for their secondary. Uh, so they they are they want man-to-man corners cuz they know that's harder to find than what they want on the front uh on the you know front line those guys are a little easier to find because you know they're stunning they're blitzing you don't need that pure edge rusher guy that could you know bend off the edge and those guys cost a lot of money to take high draft picks uh so they have guys that can play man to man and guys that can play cover zero they could trust in cover zero uh without getting burned too often the dolphins are currently third in the percentage of their cap allocated to the secondary And if you go even more specific than that, they're spending 15.76% of their cap on cornerbacks, which is the second highest mark in the league, to the Patriots. Third are the Ravens. There you go. So you see (laughs) all this stuff kind of come together here. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that when we talk about man coverage and being able to stick with guys in man coverage, you want guys that are lockdown corners. And Xavier Howard is that. You know, I think he does a really good job in space. He's not going to be a guy that can get beat in space by guys like Keenan Allen, for example. You see him move into the slot against some guys that are a lot better in short area quickness. But it's also speed. There was a play that Byron Jones made that really stuck out to me in that Chargers game where they cleared out the entire right side for Guyton coming across, who runs a 4-3-5, and Jones is with him step for step on those crossing routes. And as more teams are starting to use crossers and deep crossers and all that, speed across the field is as important as, as it is down the field. And the Dolphins have these guys that can negate some of those plays. And I think that part of it is extremely interesting. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, man-to-man corners are hard to find. You know, just go back to your question about why aren't more teams doing this. You need a lot of guys that can play man-to-man. And you need depth, too. Like, you can't just throw away your entire scheme because, you know, one of your corners get hurt. So you have to be good at identifying these guys and you have to pay these guys. And I think, you know, a big trend in the league is paying pass rushers right so instead of paying pass rushers these guys are are paying um those man-to-man corners and it, it works for their scheme i think it's interesting and i think you said this earlier the ability to dictate to an offense and i don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the best defenses we've seen this year and there are some exceptions uh the rams don't blitz a ton they blitz a decent amount the colts almost never blitz they have a top five defense but some of these other teams whether it's the Dolphins, the Steelers, the Ravens, the Patriots did a lot of cover zero blitzing last year when they had the best defense in the NFL. As more and more offenses get comfortable and the rules are tilted toward the offense and we see historic passing numbers, do you think there's something to 
the success that some of these defenses are ha- having that can dictate the style of the game to an offense because they're bringing so much pressure? Yeah, I think Anthony Lynn said this after the game. He said when a team brings that many pressures, there's only so many things you can do. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, you're, you're trying to throw a quick pass. You're trying to get, you know, there's only th- so many things you can do if you're trying to roll out away from the pressure because you cut the field in half, you know, and you're trying to throw screens um, at these guys. But eventually those defensive linemen are going to sniff out those screens. Uh, there's only so many quick pass combinations you can do. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, when I talk about dictating the protection, I mean, on that, that interception that Justin Herbert had in the fourth quarter, uh, they kind of had that amoeba look where, you know, those guys are kind of walking around and the chargers who were just getting, you know, destroyed by pressures all day, decided to keep seven in to protect and only put three guys on a route on third and 12. And then the Dolphins end up dropping everybody back. And then, you know, they rush four against seven and it completely cover up those three routes and they end up getting uh, the interception. So it, it's things like that where they dictate to the offense what you're going to do. And then we're going to, you know, be a step ahead and throw a curveball at you. It's so interesting because you saw that they have these little tiny adjustments based on what the offense is doing. So you're both being you're dictating the action and you're being reactionary in smart ways. Like when the Rams would go empty, they would come with a pressure look because we don't believe that you can block it. Even when the Rams would go shotgun, they'd do that. And you, it was funny to me, they started the game against the Rams and the Chargers with a slot blitz coming off the side because they assumed out of that look, it might be either a run or it might be a play action throw and you're bringing pressure right into the boot. So it feels like they just have such a good feel for situational football, and that's what allows them to do some of this because they know what buttons to press in the right moments. Yeah, and another really good example is in the fourth quarter, the Chargers faced a fourth and one, um, and we just talked about how they love dropping towards the the side that the line uh, slides to and blitzing away from it. So on that fourth and one, they switched it up. They they knew which mm-hmm. way the uh, offensive line was going to slide, and they dropped to the side that away from the slide. And Justin Herbert thought that he was going to have a you know a quick hot route to Keenan Allen. The guy, you know a defensive back drops right into where that route was, and it ends up incomplete. So you know they just they're just a step ahead right now. It really is funny. I mean, we think we talk all the time about offensive play callers being in a groove, and you find that rhythm, and you're just again you're pulling the right levers at the right time it feels like the dolphins are in that on the defensive side and when that's going on and when that's rolling it's really fun to watch all right ted thanks a lot man always good to do this and we will be talking to you down the road sounds good talk to you soon all right guys that's all we got for you today thank you so much to chris brown for coming on and nerding out about plenty of football topics thanks to ted for talking about the dolphins defense thanks to vic and to sean breaking down the raiders a team that i'm telling you I've enjoyed watching way more than I thought I would. Lindsay and I will be back tomorrow with our typical Thursday show. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, please do me a favor. Please go rate and review the show on your podcast platform of choice. It would mean a lot to me. You'd be doing me a favor. And please subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash football show. We still have our dollar a week promotion going. It's a dollar. You spend a dollar a week in so many dumb ways. This is a smart way to do it. Please do. You won't regret it. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, thank you so much for listening to The Athletic Football Show. Talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.